1 John 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Lord, I pray this morning as Rick comes to teach us from your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and guide us, Lord, to understand and to apply your scripture to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning, everyone. Good? You know what? Here's one thing. I am one of those that actually hates it when someone gets up and speaks and says, hey, good morning, and there's no response. Oh, come on, you could do better because it's so cliche. I'm going to completely step on my hate of that cliche. You can do better than that. Good morning, everyone. Good gracious, the sun is shining, you're breathing, you're alive, we're in here, we're not in 90 degree weather, like we're inside, there actually is air conditioning, there's a lot to be grateful for, man, we just enjoy some good music, like worshiping the Lord, opening up his word, it's good, it's a good morning, and just so that you know, it's a new day, and that means new mercies, every day is a new day, and when there's a new day, That means that there are mercies that have been promised by God, whether we've already experienced some of them or whether there's some that are coming in about two minutes or an hour or five hours. This day is all about new mercies. It is a good day. If you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, please let's open up to the book of 1 John. 1 John toward the end of the New Testament. Uh, we took a little break the last three Sundays from a series. So we've been working our way through the book of First John. The last three weeks, we took a little bit of a pause, had two families from our church share a testimony uh, on two different Sundays. Uh, we actually took one of the Sundays to ordain and install a new elder in the life of our church. So it's been a good three weeks. We're getting back to uh, this book of the Bible. Uh, we're picking up where we left off, and we're looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. And, and because it's been a few weeks and there's a lot of new people in here, I want to catch everybody up. Just a little bit of a summary about the book of 1 John. This book of the Bible is all about knowing. Knowing the thing that is most important for any of us to know. And that is knowing whether or not, in fact, we have received eternal life. That is what this entire book of the Bible, as short as it is, that is what it's about. How may we know, not think, not guess, not wonder. How may we know if we have received eternal life? Now, that little two-word phrase, eternal life, 
whenever we hear it. And just so that you know, it's biblical language referring to the totality of our relationship with God. It is biblical language that summarizes the totality of our uh, standing with God. Are we in right position before God? Which includes whether or not we get to go to heaven and spend eternity with the God of all glory. So it's not just getting to go to heaven. It includes the dynamic of life now with God if we've received eternal life. But it also includes what happens in the hereafter. So whenever we hear that little phrase, eternal life, it should actually cause us to confront something that for many of us is a little difficult, challenging, and uncomfortable. And that is our own mortality. Whenever we hear eternal life, well... Clearly, that is referring to something hereafter. So what happens in the hereafter? And that, is, that could be a little disconcerting for, for a lot of people, depending on where you are and what you believe and what you think. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning, of weeping, of lament over someone's death. It is better to go to that house than it is to go to the house of feasting. Let me get this straight. The Bible in that verse says it's better to go to a funeral service than it is to go to a house party. That doesn't seem right. It's better to go to a memorial service over the passing of a loved one than it is to go to a cookout and enjoy some sweet fellowship. At someone's house, it always has to be sweet. If it's Christian, right, it has to be sweet. The reason that verse says that it's better to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting is because it's actually good for us to be reminded that our days are numbered. It's really easy for us to think, no, we're going to be here forever. Or always, or we just don't ever think about that moment. Because the truth is, sooner or later, whether we like it or not, whether we're ready for it or not, one way or the other, we will all reach that very specific moment in our lives where we breathe our last breath. And then what? And then what? I hope so. Going to heaven. Glad. Christianity is radically different radically true genuine biblical christianity is radically different than every other worldview faith system religion out in the world every other religion out in the world teaches that you can't really know what your standing is with god you can't really know it You kind of have to guess, wonder, and wish and hope that it's a certain way. You can't know what's going to happen to you in the hereafter. You can't actually know whether or not you go to heaven. Every other religion in the world teaches that the best, this is all you can do. You can cross your spiritual fingers and hope that God or whatever it is that that religion happens to call God happens to think that you've done just enough good that outweighs the bad so that you may go to heaven or whatever it is that that religion calls heaven. So you can never know. There is no assurance. There's no security whatsoever. Christianity stands alone because at the heart of the Christian faith is an incredible promise by God, eternal life. One of the most, if not the most, 
famous, well-known verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. And Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have. Not might have, not could have. Have. Like it's done. It's a promise. Have eternal life so we don't have to fear we don't have to wonder we don't have to live in worry or in doubt it is possible to live life in the know knowing with 100 percent crystal clear cons- uh, uh, confidence that we have received eternal life that's a good thing that is a very good thing we can know you can live with that confidence but then here It's why this sermon series through the book of the Bible is so important. Because many Christians don't live with the confidence that we should live with. There's a lack of knowing. There's a lot of second guessing. Well, did I? Have I received eternal life? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So enter the book of 1 John into the discussion. The purpose of this book of the Bible is stated in 1 John 5.13. I So it's written by the Apostle John. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So we don't need to live with fear or doubt or worry. You can absolutely know. And so if you were to sit back and you kind of read slowly or carefully through 1 John, really what you're confronted with is a series of what I call just spiritual diagnostic tests. It provides these tests by which we can evaluate what is true of our heart, what is true of our mind, what is true of our life, what is, what's true. Can I really know? And so by going through the book of 1 John, it provides these tests by which we evaluate whether or not we have received eternal life. So every week in this series, you know, I've named each, each week a different test. The righteous test or the belief test or the, the, the brotherhood test, etc. Or here's the test for today. The fruit test. The fruit test. Not the fruity. Not the fruity test, but the fruit test. You know a tree by the fruit that it produces, right? You know that an apple tree is an apple tree because it produces apples, honey crisp. None of that red, delicious, mushy, mildy mess. I don't know why it's called delicious. Those are not delicious. Honey crisp. Now, here's what's interesting. The apples don't make the tree, an apple tree. It's the other way around. It makes apples because it is an apple tree. The apples don't make the tree. The tree makes the apples. My point is that the apples are the proof that the tree is, in fact, an apple tree. So, if a tree says to you, I'm an apple tree, and you look on its branches, and on its branches are a bunch of lemons... You need to have two thoughts. One, clearly, that ain't no apple tree. And number two, I need to go to get some mental evaluation because you're having a conversation with a tree. right. Spiritually, here's the point. You know what kind of tree you are by looking at the branches of your life and seeing what kind of fruit, fruit is hanging on those branches. You know that those who have, in fact, received eternal life, 
there is a display, a, something that is demonstrated, a visible, tangible, spiritual fruit that is consistent with having received grace, with having come into it an experience with God where we're, he's changed us and now we know him as father. Something is different in such a way that now there is a new kind of fruit hanging off of the branches that is our life. There's, there's a proof, there's attestation to having received eternal life. And so that's what we see in 1 John 3, verses 19 through 24. It's the fruit test. We're going to look at a few different fruit that are kind of named in these verses and just do some, some inventory of our lives individually. Man, what, do, do I see this in me? Is it true or is it not? Okay? So let's just kind of walk down this text. Verse 19. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. This first verse right there points, points to the issue of personal identity. It says there, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. To be of the truth means to be of it, right? To be of the truth means to be of it. Well, the truth is not an it, y'all. The truth is a he. John 14, verse 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the Truth. So the truth is not some abstract concept. Truth is Jesus Christ. It's God Himself. So to be of the truth is to be of Christ. In other words, that means that the person belongs to Jesus Christ. Earlier in 1 John, it actually refers to Jesus as eternal life, like Jesus Himself is eternal life. So a person who is of the truth means that they are of Christ, which means that they are of eternal life. They belong to it. This isn't part of the person. This is who we are in Christ. By his grace, we are a brand new kind of tree, a truth tree, a truth tree. We belong to the truth. And according to verse 19, we can absolutely know if we are a truth tree. So look at the, what the verse is. By this, we shall know if we are of the truth, that we are of the truth. Well, it says, by this, we shall know. By what? Well, to answer that question, you have to back up one verse in the text to verse 18, which says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it is by loving others in truth that we know that we belong to the truth. So I said a little while ago, right, that Jesus is the truth. He is truth. So Jesus being the truth, so to love in truth means to love in truth. Christ, or in other words, to love in a manner that reflects and imitates Jesus Christ. To love in truth means loving sacrificially, selflessly, just like Jesus did. It is reflecting the love of God. And, and here's like one thing that I hope for anyone in this room, that we will never, ever, ever get tired of hearing about the love of Christ. I mean, sometimes for some of us, we've heard it for so long. We're in Bible study, and you go to sermon, and you have the music, and, 
and it, it's, there's a, a, always a danger of becoming kind of like white static noise in the background. Folks, there is nothing more spectacular and amazing than the love of Christ. I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ, he's not a man, per se. He is God himself. He is the Son of God, which is to say that he is God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is the all-powerful creator. Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is God. It's what the scriptures tell us. Not, not some separate entity. He is God himself, who then, out of love, left the comforts and the bliss and the magnificence of heaven to enter into this world. And he became one of us through the virgin birth, through, through the Mary. Why? Because he loved us. Well, what does that have to do with love? Folks, here's the truth. So Jesus, who's God, all-powerful creator, made everything, made us in his image. And then we all, all of us, all of humanity, our human family, we turned and rebelled against him. All the way back, Genesis chapter 3, Garden of Eden. From then, it's just been constant rebellion. All of us living, rejecting God. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't care what your word says. I don't care what your commands are. I don't care what you want from me. So everything has just been animosity. Like, the human race, is, our legacy is being just anti-God. Sinners, hostile at enmity with God. So this isn't like, well, we'll agree to disagree. No, no, no. Like, like there is a hatred in the human heart toward Jesus. But he loves us anyway. So much so that he left glory to come here. Because he loved us to rescue us. So, you know, we call the gospel the good news because that's what the word means. Gospel means good news. To have good news, you got to have Bad news. Well, the bad news is that the wages of sin is death, is what Scripture says. For surely when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Like, like there is a consequence, an eternal spiritual consequence to sinning, whether it's a little white lie or cheating on your taxes or straight up killing somebody. It's all sin, every last bit of it. And what the Bible says is that sin merits condemnation from the all-powerful creator, eternal separation, judgment, and wrath. And God loves us. So he doesn't want that for us. He says, I'm coming to make a way. Jesus is the way and the truth, right? He came to make a way that that would not be where we go, that that would not be our ultimate destiny in eternity. So he comes down, takes on flesh, becomes one of us, is tempted in every way, but he never sins, goes to a cross, and he allows us to nail him to it. That's love. He laid down his life. He substituted himself. He put ourselves upon that tree to pay for our sins. There's this ledger on our account that is just dripping, dripping. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. And on the cross... I will take the punishment and the wrath that you deserve so that you may be spared. This is God doing it. Not some random Joe. This is God. He didn't technically have to, right? And so he goes to a cross. And he pays the price that we may be spared. And in there, the thing that was amazing is that if you know the story of that week of the crucifixion, he enters in at the beginning of the week, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I mean, they're, they're praising him. And a few days later, they're yelling, crucify him. The same people who were just one minute yelling one thing were yelling the very next, the, the, the complete opposite the next. That's us. 
It wasn't just them. We would have been doing the same thing had we been back there, y'all. That I'm certain. At least I could say that myself. I'm pretty sure I would have been in the crowd, crucified him. He died and gave his life for the very people who hated him. He died and gave his life for the very people who despised him. For the very people who drove the nails through his hands and his feet. For the ones who would cause him harm and said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. He willingly, humbly, joyfully gave his life that all who may believe in him would be spared of sin and its eternal consequences. He did it all that we may receive grace and eternal life and have the record stricken of any moral failure or spiritual shortcoming. Is that not love? I mean, is that not what love is? I've always said you can't define love, but you can, you can describe it. And it's the cross that God would be willing to give his life for us. That's love. Love is selflessly putting others ahead of ourselves, even if they hate us. Love is going out of our way for the good of a person, even if they would cause us harm. Love is foregoing comforts, if that is what it takes in order for a person to be comforted. You know what love is not? Love is not just sitting around going, oh, God bless you. That's his words and sentiment. Word, like, like real love is actually saying, uh, I'm going to take action and I want God to use me in order to be a blessing to a person. That is what love is. Selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like, um, Christ-like I'm all in to the fullest and to the maximum. Now, I confess that I struggle with that. I don't know about some of y'all. I confess that I don't find that to be particularly natural in me. Honestly, I I don't think that that really lives in me. And left to myself, I'll never demonstrate Christ-like sacrificial love. It ain't happening. But here's the good news. It doesn't require me to muster it up and manufacture it and conjure it up in me. The moment that we give our life to Christ and say, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died for me. I believe he was raised on the third day. I don't want to live for the things of the world. I'm going to pursue the Lord. I'm going to follow him. The moment that happens, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. And it is the Holy Spirit who then starts to work in me and through me that I may begin to reflect Christ-like love in my life. This is the fruit test. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 lists love as the first fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who works this out in us. We're willing participants. We're, we're willing vessels. We make ourselves available, but it's the Holy Spirit who does it. So here's the test. Do you see the fruit of love in your life? Like, when you look at the branches of your life, do you see sacrificial, selfless love there? Do you display selfless love toward your spouse? Uh Uh-oh. 
to your children? What's love look like at your home from you? What, what would the folks in your house say? Would they say, yep, my husband, he loves me sacrificially. Would your children say, yep, my mom, she loves me selflessly. What, what is the evidence? What about church family? Between our brothers and sisters in Christ, like, would we say of one another, yeah, they're, they're, they're loving, they're loving sacrificially and selflessly. I mean, what's, what's the truth? What about your neighbors or your coworkers? Would they, they, would, do they sense a love from you, a Christ-like love toward them? Are you praying consistently, God, help me to grow in my capacity to, to love the way that Christ loved, whether it's in my home or my neighborhood, at school, at work, at play, wherever I'm at. Lord, are, are you praying for God to make you a love-filled follower of Christ? Because it is by our display of love that we know that we've received eternal life. By this, you shall know that you are of the truth previous verses by loving others in truth so what what's truth what is the truth of your life this is how we know what kind of tree we are is there love is there love in your life so a christian is a weird kind of tree because like in nature trees only have one kind of fruit well spiritually christians we have a variety of fruit cornucopia of fruit. According to this text, the first one is love, the one I just discussed. The second one is confidence. Look at verses 20 and 21. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So there's that word confidence. What's it mean? Confidence means boldness. Confidence means courage. Confidence is a good thing. Not arrogance, not pride, not talking about ego, not saying that. Confidence, though, confidence is actually a very very good thing. The kind of confidence referred to in verse 21 there is the kind that arises out of knowing that which is true. Knowing results in confidence. On the other hand, uncertainty leads to the opposite. Uncertainty results in fear. Uncertainty results in timidity. But, but knowing, man, knowing, knowing results in confidence. So here, very soon, me and Jamie will be walking through the valley of the shadow of death for the fourth time. Because our little one, we have to start teaching her the alphabet. Right? We got to help her to figure out, hey, how to dif differentiate between an A and a P. And how to write a B as opposed to a T. And we've done this three times already. So I already know exactly how this is going to go down. Hey, Eve, which letter is this? That question is going to be met with gnashing of teeth, with wail, weeping, wailing, sackcloth, and ashes. Hey, 
Eve, will you write a little B here? That ask of her is going to create drama on a scale. All right, so we got to teach this kid her, her ABCs. And every time we ask her what to do or this letter, which is which, she's going to freak out, panic, cry. It's going to be irritation and it's going to be chaos, right? Why? Because she doesn't know. Because she doesn't know what the difference is between an A or a B. Now, the difference is this. Once she knows her ABCs, it's a completely different story. Hey, Eve, this is an M. I know. Right? It'll be a little smug. Like, she'll, she'll be all smug about it. Like, in, but in a good way. It'll be cute, right? So it'll be, why? Because she knows it. She'll be like Han Solo. I love you. I know. Like, there'll be this, that brazen confidence in knowing when you know something. So it's completely different when you ask a kid something that they know. They answer and they answer with a smile. They start living in the knowledge of what it is that they know, walking in it, applying it, and using it. So knowing, knowing makes all the difference in the world. Like on, uh, you go into a classroom on test day with a little giddy-up in your step if you know the material. You go to work with a little swag in your step. If you know how to do your job and you're good at it, your conversations are livelier when you know what you're talking about. You carry yourself differently when you know stuff. It, it, it changes how you walk, your perception, your attitude. When you know, because when you know, it gives you confidence. And it, it in, not just influences, but it changes how you carry yourself throughout the day. Well, if knowing my ABCs makes that much of a difference, how much more does knowing that I have eternal life? I mean, do you think that we should walk with a little bit of swag in our step if we know that God loves us and that he's forgiven us of all of our sin? I mean, shouldn't there be a, a little, a little giddy-up to our step if we know that God is our Father who's taking care of us and guiding us? I mean, shouldn't there be something? We should carry ourselves differently in this world if we have the confidence of knowing that we have tasted of the grace of God God and that we have stepped into eternal, eternal life. Knowing takes away life's fears. It takes away the worry, the wondering, the second guessing. Knowing gives us confidence. And there's joy in that. There's boldness in that. There's courage in that. Now, the truth is there's a big difference between learning our ABCs and learning spiritual truth. Because once we learn our ABCs, I, I, I doubt that many of us here are actually still wondering, well, I'm not sure that I know the difference between an A and a T. Like, we probably all know this, right? Don't really second-guess that. Spiritual truth is a little different because our hearts are prone, when it comes to spiritual truth, to start wondering, oh, I'm not sure, trying to question everything. The point of 1 John 3.20, the point of that verse is that some, there are times when our heart, our own heart, condemns us. So as followers of Jesus, we are called to love others, right? We're called to love people. And that, that is, in fact, selfless, sacrificial love is the means by which we know that we've received eternal life, but we fail. We fail to love people the way that we should. So we're driving home, and there's a person in need, and we quickly turn the other way. Why? We don't want to be bothered. I don't have time. 
or we, we find out that there's someone in the community, in our neighborhood, in our family, our church, whatnot, that has a financial need that requires some assistance, and we tune it out, and I don't want to hear it because it might take away from the money I need to buy the car I think I deserve or to get to go yet on another vacation, right? It might take away from that. So instead of being a blessing, we end up being stingy and selfish. We do this all the time, do we not? Or, or even if it's not that situation, what about in our home life? Like where we should be like compassionate and kind and merciful toward our spouse. How many times do we browbeat and just judge them and keep them in their guild and just launch accusations at them? Man, every, all the time, all of us, we're very unloving, are we not? And so regardless of the scenario or who we're directing our lack of love towards, our heart starts messing with us. Like a prosecuting attorney, our own heart starts making a case against us. Here's what it says. Oh, you passed that poor person that needed some help, but you didn't want to help them, and you kept driving. You're not a Christian. There is no way an actual follower of Jesus ignores that need. How can you possibly say you've tasted of the grace of God? You acted like that toward your spouse? There is no way anyone who has ever received eternal life treats anyone, especially their spouse, that way. Am I right? Man, our heart is quick, quick to start condemning us. Very fast to do so. And the reality is that we are all sinners. We all fall short, desperately short of the glory and the standard of God. None of us ever love anyone to the degree or to the extent that we should. None of us. None of us love anyone to the extent that Christ loves us. None of us. And what happens is, sooner or later, it's just a matter of time, that your own heart starts to condemn you. Like, next thing you know in your life, your own conscience is burdened. Well, I'm not very loving. I'm not as loving as I should be. And, and the reality, the, the, you're weighed down by the conviction that really, at the end of the day, you're nothing but a jerk face. And in those moments, our hearts get really heavy-handed. And just start pouring down judgment on us raining down self-condemnation upon us. So what do we do in those moments? In those moments, we need to be reminded of the gospel, which is the rest of verse 20. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Our heart, your heart is not your judge. My heart is not my judge. Our judge is the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Your own heart lies to you. Your heart lies more to you than anyone else. Your heart lies to you all the time. You can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your emotions. You can't trust your sentiment. Your heart lies to you. And because your heart is a liar, it is unfit and unqualified to be your judge. What we need is someone who is unbiased, who's just and righteous, and who knows all things. God, guess what, knows us better than, even than our own heart. 
That's what that verse says. God is great in our heart. He knows everything. So our heart sits there daily trying to convince us that eternal life is a matter of how moral you are and how good you are and how religious you are. That's a lie. That's a lie. It doesn't work that way. Eternal life is not received that way. It is not based on a spiritual performance. It is based upon the grace of God. That's the truth. But your heart, your heart's always trying to twist it and turn it the other way as if it has something to do with what you do as opposed to what it is that God gives. So this is the very beauty of the Christian message, the simplicity of the biblical story, that eternal life is a free gift of God that we don't earn that we don't merit, that we don't deserve. You can't work for it. You can't attain it to it. No matter how hard you try, you will never be able to work yourself into a position where you deserve it. So God freely and graciously offers it. It is a gift of grace. We shouldn't sin. We should never sin. It is never right. It is never justified. It's wrong. It's bad. It it dishonors the Lord. It's not in our good interest. It hurts the people around us. We should never sin, but we do. Man, we should love everyone with the love of Christ sacrificially. But man, we fail. Here's the truth, though. If you have placed your faith in who Jesus is, who is God, And what he did, that he died on that cross to pay for your sin, was raised on the third day. If you believe who he is and what he did, and you have given your life to follow him, you have placed your life in his hands, you've placed your faith in his hands, regardless of the conduct of your life, you have received eternal life. All of your sin is forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, the condemnation is removed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. He who is the judge declares us innocent. It's an amazing biblical teaching. We're declared innocent in the eyes of God, not because we don't sin, but because he has just wiped it from the ledger. The debt has been paid. And that is why we rejoice at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation from God. There ain't no condemnation from the devil as much as he may try. There sure ain't no condemnation from other people. And there can't be any condemnation from my own heart because the judge who is gracious has declared me innocent. He is greater in our hearts. This is the fruit test. Do you live with confidence in God's grace? Do you live with confidence knowing, knowing that the greatness of God's grace transcends your sin? For those of us who've received eternal life, there should not be timidity, there should not be fear, there should not be uncertainty. There should be bold, courageous, joyful confidence because that standing before God is not based on how good I may try to be, but it's completely based on this promise that God says, if you believe in Jesus, you shall be saved. You will receive eternal life. 
So the first fruit in the text, love. Do you see love hanging off the branches of your life? The second one was confidence. The third one is, get. I love this one. You ready? Answered prayer. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, I'm going to cop out on this one today because we don't have time. Uh, I don't have time to unpack this fully, but it's okay. The prayer comes back comes up later in 1 John, so we'll discuss it more at length in a few weeks. Um, but for right now, I'm just going to offer three qualifications for us to understand what verse 22 means. So whatever we ask, we receive for him. So first, the whatever we ask must be qualified by 1 John 5.14, which says that our prayers must be according to God's will. The whatever we ask must comply or line up with whatever God's will is. So if we're asking for something that is not God's will, we should not expect for it to take place. Clear? All right, that's a little caveat number one. Two, the second thing is, because of the context of 1 John chapter 3, read the whole chapter. It's all about Christian love, right? Loving others, loving your brothers. It's all about love. Therefore, I believe that the, the prayer referred to in verse 22 is loving prayers toward others. Intercessory prayer toward others. The prayer in verse 22 is not self-indulgent prayer, but intercessory prayer for those who are in need. And the third thing I'll offer real quick, the kind of prayer God promises to answer is that which is prayed by those who are living in accordance to his word. I mean, that's what that verse says. Verse 22, it's those who are obeying commandments. Now, it's important. Our obedience does not cause God to answer our prayer. God, our, our obedience, no matter how good or devout or how stout, that does not cause or make God to answer our prayers. Our, our, our life is not meritorious. The point of the verse is that we shouldn't presume that God will answer our prayers if we're deliberately living in disobedience. So if we're just living out there like, well, God, give me, give me, give me, or help so-and-so, whatever. But meanwhile, we're living in contradiction to his word. We shouldn't expect that he's going to answer those prayers. That's really the point of, of that verse there. So like I said, we'll discuss this more in a few weeks. Uh, for now, this is really what I want to get to. If you see God answering your prayers, that's evidence that you've received eternal life. It's the point of the text. That's fruit. Not our by our doing. It is God doing it. But because we're in right relationship with him, because we've received eternal life, he's listening and answering our prayers. That's evidence that we are in right standing with God. And I, I would say that there are many anthemers that should feel very encouraged at this. Because I tell you, over the last year and a half, over the last six months, and over the last couple of months in particular, the prayers in the life of this church that have been flying around, and we're seeing God really intervening in the lives of people, and healings, and miraculous stuff, and supernatural stuff. It is amazing, folks. Many of us should be really encouraged. God is listening to our prayers that's evidence. That's evidence. That's proof. That's fruit that we have received eternal life. So you've got to ask yourself, what do I pray for? And when I do, does God listen? Does he answer? All right. The fourth one. 
Fourth fruit, fourth and last one. The text reveals that the fourth fruit that reveals if we're a truth tree is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So look at verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The flow of thought here is profound. Any of y'all remember algebra? I know I always say this one, but you remember the transitive property? We're we're really going to apply the transitive property here. You have to, okay? It, It starts off this way. We are given a commandment. That commandment is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. It's, it's interesting how it's stated in the singular. It's like it's one commandment in two parts, like one coin, one side and the other side, right? One commandment, believe in Jesus, love one another. Well, according to the flow of the argument here, the only way to obey or heed the commandment to believe in Jesus and love others is by abiding in him and he abiding in us. The word abide means to dwell or to reside, right? So that Jesus is our home and we are his home in a sense. So the only way to to believe that Jesus is Jesus and to love others the way Jesus loves is by through this mutual abiding, this relationship, connection with God. Well, the only way to have this mutual abiding is if the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is living and dwelling within us. Transitive property. The only way to believe in Jesus and to obey Jesus is if the Holy Spirit is active in us and working through us. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is our teacher. He convinces us and convicts us of the truth. The Holy Spirit is who inspires us to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So there's the belief component. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we can even begin to confess Jesus as Lord. It is the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live a righteous life, to live in obedience to Christ, to love as Christ has loved. So that's the fruit test. Do you see the Holy Spirit at work? Do you sense the Holy Spirit experientially and objectively in your lifestyle, in your conduct, how you think, how you talk, what you do, what you prioritize. Is it evident that God himself is in you, working in you, and through you to make you more like Christ? And what I love about these verses is that it actually shows the partnership or the collaboration, the 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 cooperation between us as the human vessel and the Lord, the divine agent. It's all him. It's all God. It's all his doing. But we get to be a jar of clay where he fills us, where we're molded, where he works in us. But still there has to be a willingness, and then he does what he does. So do you see that alive in you, in your life? Are you a willing vessel, humble before him? 
And then you're seeing him work and move and stir and change you. So uh, not this past week, but the week before, we got our family, we got to go to the beach. Huge blessing. Wonderful time. It was fun. It was not relaxing. With four little ones, beach time is Navy SEAL training. It's not relaxing, but it was fun. It was good. And years ago, we bought this canopy, which is decent size. And, you know, if we go to the beach, we set it up because you want to have a, a got to have a beachhead there, you know, and a place where you can be under the shade, at least for a little while. So we're out there the whole week. And one day we go out there, and on this, this one day in particular, it was the last day we were there, it was really windy. Like the wind got gnarly. And I'm like, man, I don't know. Like this canopy might turn into a tent real quick. Uh, not a tent, but uh, um, thank you, a kite. And um, so I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And so I, dug, like, I mean, I got the t- post as far down as I could, and then I dug into the sand as far as I possibly could, tied off into the, tent, the, the, the stakes, and, I'm, and I didn't have a hammer. So and I'm like full weight trying to drive the stakes down into the sand as far as I possibly could, and then I piled as much sand on top of that as I could, and I did that for all four, all four legs. And so, well, because we have four little ones, you know, I don't get to sit under the canopy and read a book. That means I'm on water patrol duty for the next six hours. And so making sure that, you know, the undercurrent doesn't take them out or that a wave destroys them. You know, I'm out there shark repellent, you know, like just making sure that, you know, Leviathan doesn't come up on the shore and try to take their leg or anything like that. So I'm up there like up to my knees in the water watching the kids. and But the whole time, Every two seconds, I'm looking back over my shoulder. I'm not sure, because I wasn't sure that sucker was anchored well. The wind was that gnarly. Like, this thing's going to fly away. So I just had no confidence that it was anchored sufficiently. If you look at 1 John 3.19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart. It is not unusual. It is not abnormal for a Christian to experience moments of doubt. To second guess whether or not we've received eternal life. We often don't feel saved, whatever that may mean. We don't feel like we've received eternal life. We don't feel as if we're anchored to Christ. And it feels as if at any moment, anything is going to like just blow us away. And remove our security and remove our assurance So what our heart needs is reassuring, reassuring. And that is what happens by doing what we've done today. Evaluate your life. Look at the spiritual fruit in your life. And most importantly, you reassure your heart by remembering that the reason, that the reason you are secure is not because of anything that you do, but it's because of the grace of God. That we are secure, that we are anchored, not by how much we try or how hard uh, we, or how well we do spiritually. We're not secured by that. We are anchored because Jesus has anchored us to himself. And you know how we're anchored to him? Through the cross. You know what the tent pegs were, the stakes were? Those nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. And that anchors us to him. His blood is the very rope that is like attached to the stakes that don't let us 
blow off or blow away. And it's not just that, that Jesus is the one who anchors us. He is the anchor. He's the cornerstone. He's a surety. He's our fixed point, our foundation. He's everything. And so long as Jesus is all-powerful, and he is, and so long as Jesus is all-grace, and he is, there is nothing that can remove us from his hands. Nothing. It is all by the grace of God, the cross, and our faith in him. So what kind of tree are you? When you look at your life, what kind of fruit do you see hanging off the branches of your life? Do you see selfless, sacrificial love toward others? Do you see confidence in God's grace? Do you see answered prayers in your life? And do you see the work, the hand of God, the Holy Spirit in you and through you? This is how we know that we've received eternal life. And, and I said this a few weeks back. I don't think that these are questions that you hear one time and answer once in a few seconds. I think that this is a season of life where I think we should all enter into and we begin to really ponder and meditate and pray to God and come alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ and help me figure this out, what is true of me. I don't want to be misled. I want, I want to make sure that this is true. But just think of this, just this crowd that we have in this room. What if we all enter into this season of making sure that we've received eternal life? And what if after this season we all come out of it like, yes, we know, I know that I've received eternal life. Folks, this world will never be the same. An army, an army of people who know that they've received eternal life, Andrew won't be the same. Harnett County won't be the same. Southern Wake County won't be the same. And portions of Joko won't be the same. We'll change this place because God is in us and we're the light of the world with Christ. So I'm going to ask the priest to come up. They're going to lead us in a closing song. And I just want you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and just to begin now, ponder this, meditate on this. Ask, Lord, I, I don't know what's true. I mean, are you willing to consider and evaluate the, the fruit that is in your life? So let's bow, let's pray. Lord, we pray, we come before you, and we're asking questions of you. Lord, we're searching ourselves, and Lord, we, we need some help. Lord, I pray specifically for everyone here. I hope that no one would leave wondering or, or second-guessing, Lord. I know that the gift of salvation and eternal life is simply a gift that you offer and that we receive by extending our faith toward you, by reaching out to you with our heart, Lord, and embracing Christ as Lord. And so if there's anyone, if there's anyone in here who has never done that, Lord, I pray that they would do so now. If you're in here this morning and, and you've never actually pledged your life to follow up Christ, you could do that. Where you're sitting, I'm not asking you to do anything, but just to pray and call out to the Lord from the depths and the privacy of your own heart. And just say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I have 
neglected you. I rebelled against you. I've done things my way. I'm, I'm tired of living that way. I'm now turning. I believe in you. I believe in your love. I, I, I give my life to follow after Jesus. So if you've never prayed that prayer with sincerity in your heart, I would, I would ask that would you do that. And for the rest of us, maybe we prayed that prayer last week or 10 years ago, whenever it was, and we, we look at the branches of our life, and I mean, there may be a fruit here or there, but there's not a, a bounty of fruit, Lord. I pray for each and every one of those that the, the branches will be full of love and confidence and answered prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we praise you. Thank you for the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel message. And I thank you, Lord, that you did not call on us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, whatever that may mean, Lord. Uh, that you simply sent your son. And Jesus, you died. And now by grace, we can be anchored in your heart forever and ever and received eternal life and we can know that that is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.